Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Something of an obsession on this podcast for us has been what happens now to the Republican Party? How do they rebuild, regroup? Where do they go next? It's been a fascination of mine, particularly how they got to this point. And one aspect of it looms very large, which is how on earth can this party, given what happened to them under Donald Trump, ever hope to reach out to those African-American voters minority voters who overwhelmingly turned their backs on the Republican Party. With all that in mind, I was really excited by the prospect of speaking to Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, who made a break from Team Trump by signing up last autumn for the Lincoln Project, which was that group of renegade Republicans who were campaigning to make Joe Biden president. Michael Steele is interesting for all those reasons, but he's also interesting because he was the first African-American chair of the RNC. He's a commentator. You see him on MSNBC, the kind of mainly liberal network, so that's interesting. He's the brother-in-law of Mike Tyson. How about that? Not that we got into that in our conversation, but there was so much else to talk about. A man who grew up in a Democratic family, his mother was a Democrat, became in effect the head of the Republican Party, only to in some ways have his heart broken by what happened under Donald Trump. So my first question to Michael Steele was, how on earth did someone like him become a Republican? Well, it's, you know, it's like any journey, you, you just kind of started and you don't know where it's going to end up. I mean, I, I became a Republican at 17 years old growing up in Washington, D.C., which, again, was not some conservative bastion. It was very much a town roiled by uh, Watergate, the Vietnam War, uh, upheavals in the Catholic Church, uh, a lot of things that were going on. It, it just, for me, was part of how my mother raised me to sort of think independently outside the box. I studied both political parties, recognized that the political home for Republicans was, um, uh, for, for African-Americans was the Republican Party. So I started there and was like, okay, let's, what happened here? And what was the link between uh, my community and the Republican Party? And it was a very strong link, which by the late 60s, uh, had really begun to weaken, but nonetheless was, uh, for me, uh, a jump-off point and, uh, you know, a towering figure like Ronald Reagan and his, his race for the presidency in 1976 stood out. The truth is, 
Washington has taken over functions that don't truly belong to it. In almost every case, it has been a failure. He said things that appealed to me, made sense to me, uh, and it just all connected. And then next thing I know, <laughs> I'm a county chairman, then I'm a state chairman, and then national chairman. So it's it's um, it's nothing I set out to do to be, you know, to have those kinds of roles inside the party. For me, it was just a place to 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 land with a political philosophy that aligned with what I believed, and it made sense for me as a Republican. I understand what you mean about looking historically, because you'd have been thinking, for example, of Abraham Lincoln, obviously right. a Republican, and uh, that there would be that lineage. But by the time you were making those choices, I mean, for example, you mentioned Ronald Reagan, and famously he launched his campaign for president in the town of Philadelphia, Mississippi, with which which had a very you know, racially fraught history. That was 1980. That wasn't 1976, which was his first run for president. And so that no, and I can imagine why that would resonate for you. What the point I was going to go on to make was that, you know, the symbolism of that place in his nineteen eighty run was it was associated with so called states' rights, which is understood, you know, often as code for a kind of racial message about about whites, well, segregation and even supremacy. And what I'm getting at is that it's not as if the Republican Party before Donald Trump, and we're definitely going to get on to him, but it's not as if it was, you know, a walk in the park for an African-American. It had a lot of really tricky attitudes. Well, you can compare it to the Democrats who had a former KKK as a member of the United States Senate um, and Senator Byrd. So <laughs> the reality of it is what you can, what you see is both part- parties had a torturous uh, relationship with race. And even though the Republicans you know, had embraced civil rights from its early foundings, had begun to uh, make, I think, poor calculations regarding to civil rights. Um, and, and the Democrats, too, had the same struggle where, you know, Lyndon Johnson was not, a, you know, a, a leader in civil rights and, and desegregation, but he reluctantly uh, embraced that. And it, you know, ticked off a lot of the hard base of the, of the Democratic Party those very same white Southern men. Uh, and so you can see the, how the politics, you know, sort of drove the narrative uh, around what the country would look like and how the country would respond on some of these issues. Yeah. I mean, look, I absolutely take your point that no, neither of these two main parties have any kind of monopoly on virtue right. and, 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 and no, no party has a completely you know, clean record. But just to bring it much closer to the present, when you were chairing the party in during the Obama period. And you saw the way that Republicans went after Barack Obama, the attempts really to brand his presidency itself as somehow fundamentally illegitimate and the, you know, the birther claims. Again, Donald Trump was the main driver of those, but other Republicans picking them up. I just want to know whether you felt when you were sitting in those meetings as chair of the Republican committee in the Obama period, did you feel confident that everyone around you was only opposing Obama because he was a Democrat and because it was a it was an agenda for, for the country? Or did you feel there was a racial element? There's always a racial element. Come on, you're dealing with white folks. There's always a racial element. You know, that's I I just wish people could be honest about that. Um, Of course, there is. Look, I was sat in sat in meetings as chairman of the National Party, and that the you know these people would do these presentations. I look at them and say, "You realize I'm black, right? I can't go out and say this stuff. What the hell are you talking about? What kind of things were they thinking of? 
I mean, just doing just communications. I mean, just how do you how do you message stuff? What do you say? How do you you know talk about things? You know, I, I can't talk about these things like a white boy. I'm not I'm not white. The reality of it is, yeah, there obviously there were those who who were much more interested in, in playing up the birtherism narrative that Trump and others had stirred up around President Obama. And I pushed back against that. I never gave them speeches. I never made those comments for me. The fact of the matter is we made a conscious effort as a party uh, to, to lean into it, uh, both in the 1960s and now more recently uh, under Trump, um, as we sort of embrace this sort of fake populism, which is uh, nothing but a ruse for white nationalism. And I think that we're going to pay a dear price for it, ultimately, if we stay on this course. I, Barack Hussein Obama, I, do Barack, solemnly swear. I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear. You were elected to chair the Republican National Committee just, I think it was 10 days after Barack Obama was sworn in. And it was, another time, it seemed to fit with, you know, the campaign that had been uh, you'd you know people had heard from I was going to say John McCain and Mitt Romney, but also you heard it even in George W. Bush's period, which was the Republicans have to reach out, they have to talk to minorities, they have to start winning over the trust and votes of minorities. You think about how moderate, really, relative to what was to come, figures like Mitt Romney or or, or John McCain were. How just walk us through the process of that kind of Republican Party. To, to the one where it gets to the point where you think I can't be in this anymore? Well, I'm still in it. So I haven't left the party. So I'm, I'm still a Republican. And, and one of the reasons I, I stay in the fight, because I know it pisses them off. So that's, that's <laughs> number one. Even with Barack Obama holding office, uh, the party uh, still struggled with what it would do and how it would present itself uh, to the country. Uh, so when I did get elected, I wanted to make it very clear. In fact, I had a, uh, a member say to me, oh, gee, now African-Americans will join the GOP. And I'm like, I'm not some pie piper. Black folks right. aren't going to wake up the day after my election and go, oh, they elected a black man. Let me go join the GOP, um, which, which spoke to me uh, to one of the fundamental problems that still exist inside the party. They think this 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 race piece is a throwaway, and that you just you know tap it and touch it, and and it's all magic and it works. And you know you saw that with President Trump coming out and, and claiming, oh, guess you know, black unemployment is the lowest it's ever been. Vote for me. Um, no, <laughs> no, that's not how it works. You've got to put work into it. You've got to come to the conversation seriously with the intent of actually building a relationship and and working towards a consensus on some of the 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 very important issues that are still front and center for African Americans and that kind of cheap marketing to the community um, doesn't win you votes I mean you know there's there's so much to say about that particularly about how Donald Trump approached it and him claiming you know I've done well, it was incredible the things he said, you know. Nobody has done more for the black community than Donald Trump. And if you look, with the exception of Abraham Lincoln, possible exception, but the exception of Abraham Lincoln, nobody has done what I've done. 
before we leave, though, your own sort of journey, there's just that last piece of it, which is absolutely take the point that you were elected in 2009, six ballots. It wasn't because of your race. But two years later, you were pushed out, in effect. You lost out. You weren't re-elected. How much do you think that was connected with race? I think it it was probably less connected to race than the fact that I was making changes inside the party they didn't want. I, I broke up the, the the money system. You know, the members when they when they elected me made it very clear they wanted the the money cabal inside the RNC to end. And I thought my former general counsel Reince Priebus, who was my successor, understood that. But clearly, he saw the political advantage of positioning himself against me, while he signed off on a lot of these policies and, and approaches. But that's politics. I get it. That's politics. Um, but I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. I did what a chairman's supposed to do, win elections and raise money. So it wasn't enough to win. It was also uh, what you would do after the win that was more concerning for some of them. When do we beat Mexico at the border? They're laughing at us, at our stupidity. That moment where Donald Trump goes down the escalator in Trump Tower and says... I'm running for president, and he talks straight away. Day one, he talks about... When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. Mexico is giving us their criminals, their rapists, etc. And you watch the Republican Party embrace him. What is your account? How do you explain how the party that, you know, had been talking about broadening the base, going going broader and wider, suddenly is running, rallying to this guy. What's your explanation for that? Stupid, uh, hypocritical, and, and the, one of the worst combinations in politics is to be a you know a stupid hypocrite. Uh, and and they were. They put out this document. They called it an autopsy. They had done this self internal review. They spent millions of dollars to do it. Um, and it came back and said something that I knew <laughs> and that the chairman before me knew that, dude, you got to you got to put your muscle into it. You got to be serious. You got to work. You got to build these relationships. You got to build consensus. So you do all of that. Then you get some guy comes down an escalator and the first words out of his mouth is all Mexicans are rapists and I'm going to build a wall to keep them out. And he goes on and on from there. So at that point, he just took your, you know, how many many pages of your autopsy it was, and he just crapped all over it. But here's the point. What was the party's response? Nothing. They said nothing and they did nothing. I told Reince, I called him and said, what the hell are you doing? You get Donald Trump's behind down to Washington immediately, sit him down, Put that document in front of him and tell him, this is what we are doing. And if you can't do this, you will not get support from us in in this primary process. And we will dog you every single day until you're out of the race. But they didn't do that. But do you you not think they would say, you know what, Michael, your approach, I know you weren't the man in charge, but your approach of Republicans being nice and inclusive, you tried it with John McCain, he lost, you tried it with Mitt Romney, he lost. Donald Trump tore up that strategy. But you know what? He won. Yeah. And look what we got. We got an insurrection on January 6th. So give me nice any day. I'd rather lose a race with a with a candidate that stands on principle, that has values, that can 
that at least attempts to make the case for a, a democratic republic than some shyster, some charlatan, some guy who changed his party affiliation five times in the 10 years before he decided to settle on a Republican race for president? Yeah, okay. So what'd you get for that? Yeah, you won the election, but you damn near destroyed the country. When you say that, that is exactly what now makes you a minority voice inside the Republican Party. There's you and there's a few <laughs> others in the in the Lincoln Project. I want to know to what extent it surprised you in 2015, in 2016 and, and into the Trump presidency, how few of the you there were who were ready to stand against this rather than falling in line behind Donald Trump? You know, I have, I'm not even going to sit here and pretend like I wasn't surprised. I, I was surprised because some people who, you know, who beat their chest over the years on, on a host of issues, not just on, uh, you know, big foreign policy stuff like, you know, and, and, you know, so when Trump comes out and starts, you know, getting us into trade wars and, going after our allies like Great Britain and Germany, uh, but then embracing friggin' Soviet Union, because that's what they are. That's what they are. And we're embracing that? Wait a minute. When did I wasn't in that meeting. When did that happen, right? Uh, and I thought that you would have senators and members of Congress and governors stand up and go, oh, wait a minute, time out. Hell no, we ain't. That's not what we are. But they didn't. And so men like John McCain became isolated and, and you know, sycophants like, like Lindsey Graham's became emboldened once the McCain's were off the stage. How does that happen? And what is your explanation to that? I mean, is it just literally lust for power, the desire to be near, adjacent to power? What is it? That you have to, you have to get on a couch with them and help figure that out. I'm not even going to try to get in their head because to me, that what it says to me is, you have no political mores, you have no principles. I don't walk away from my principles. You know, people go, well, why would you just leave and become a Democrat? Because I'm not a Democrat. <laughs> and so I'm not, just because I'm upset with what's going on in my house doesn't mean I'm going to, I'm going to leave my house and go across the street to a house where I can't even figure out where the bathroom is. I, there is no, there, there's no orientation for me there. No, I get that. Although you did join up with the Lincoln Project, which while it was still, you know, it didn't become a join the Democrats, they were campaigning for Donald Trump to lose and for Joe Biden to win. I mean, yes, it's not moving across into the other house, but it's getting pretty close to their front to their front yard, isn't it? No, 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 it's not. Because it wasn't about it wasn't about, oh, I'm embracing John, uh, Joe Biden's policy on on XL pipeline, which I disagreed with where I was and where I had been going back to the 2015 election, was Donald Trump should never be president because Donald Trump was not the kind of person who should sit in the Oval behind the Resolute Desk. For me, it is, more, it is much more than what policies you pronounce or what, what program you want to introduce or how well you may or may not work with Congress. There is more to being president than that and, and, and bringing a sensibility of, of honor and dignity to the office, not just slinging from the hip and making stuff up, disregarding protocol, not giving a damn about the process, ignoring the constitutional principles and guide guideposts that have been in place for 244 years. Because why? Uh, because I can. So that doesn't make you a Democrat. It makes you a Biden Republican, a kind of one-off. No, it makes me an American. 
It doesn't make me, I'm not, this was not for me a political decision. I was not out here, you know, trying to, you know, score a political point or, or make a political stand. It was really about the country. I get the idea that this individual was uniquely unfit um, to be the president. And as a moral position, as an American, you just wanted to stop him getting a second term. That I understand. But you do identify still as a Republican. And yet the leading lights of that party enabled Donald Trump, supported him, sought his re-election, sustained him. So put aside Donald Trump. How can you stand in the same party as, say, a Lindsey Graham or a Mitch McConnell, who were ready to act as, you know, handmaids to the Trump presidency? How what have you got in common with those people now? Well, I don't have that in common with them, but presumably there are other things that we do have in common. And and that that's going to be tested and remains to be seen. That's going to be part of the the ongoing conversation that we have. I stand, you know, Mitt Romney and, and Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and all and, and, and I all stand together against the, the kind of Trumpian uh, Republican uh, crazy that we've seen over the last uh, four or five years. And so um, now we try to move forward. We'll see how this plays out. I don't know how it will play out. You know, look, I've been a Republican for 46 years. So why should I get up and just leave because some idiot walked in the room? That's not to say that at some point I may too leave. And, you know, I may, I may get up and say, you know what? I, I gave it my best and <laughs> stupid is as stupid is and I can't, I can't change stupid. So I'm out. Um, what, what would be the proof to you that, yes, this battle cannot be won? Would it be if they, they nominate Donald Trump again? I don't know. We'll see. I don't know what it is. What about these efforts all across the country? We've talked about them on the podcast just recently with an activist from the NAACP's Legal Defence Fund reporting that more than 250 efforts around the country to essentially suppress the vote and particularly aimed at African-American voters. You know those bills going through at state level. When you look at a Republican Party that seems almost committed institutionally to denying African-Americans their their rightful say in the country, does that not feel to you like a line? Uh, no, because the Republican governor of Maryland's not doing that. The Republican governor of Massachusetts is not doing that. So I'm not going to just go half cocked because the governor of uh, Georgia and Arizona, uh, working with their legislatures, are doing that. Again, that's you, you draw it up, you you show it, you you push back against it, you try to get them to understand why their efforts are not just boneheaded but are antithetical to civil rights history, certainly antithetical to uh, the civil rights history of the Republican Party. You know, I get that they um, are reacting to Georgia going blue um, in in 2020, but I don't get why they don't understand why that happened. (laughs) You know, that happened because you didn't give the people anything to vote for. What you offered up was something they didn't want. And you can't force that on voters. I mean, yeah, Democrats won the state, but they won the state with the help of a lot of Republicans. It's not just Democrats, because Georgia technically, you know, is not a blue state. Uh, So that meant a lot of Republicans voted against the Republican nominees for not just president, but for the Senate. Uh, and, And so you as a party, what I've understood from the losses that I've experienced in my life is you take a step back and you try to understand 
what the hell just happened here? Why did this? Why did why did we lose? We didn't lose because voters use vote by mail. <laughs> you mentioned before you name checked Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney, Adam Kinzinger, whole, whole a few others of you who might we might call the Republican resistance. But the are there ever moments when you think about the much larger number who are on the other side of that who voted to acquit Donald Trump or even to uh, discount those election returns from st- the, and not to certify votes uh, from states that they contested. Do you ever think, you know what, maybe the 17-year-old Michael Steele, who broke from the party of your mother and, and, and the, your, you know, the larger community that you had grown up in, do you ever think that 17-year-old Michael Steele just got it wrong and should have chosen a D rather than an R? I, I thought I think that seventeen-year-old Michael Steele got it right. I think a, a modern-day seventeen-year-old Michael Steele wouldn't join, and I think that's what the party misses: uh, the fact that we're isolating ourselves from this generation of voters, young voters especially. The Stacey Abrams voter coming into her own uh, has options, should have options, should have choices. Well, more and more, we're making ourselves less and less a choice for that voter. And, and I think that, that that's unfortunate. Politics is a game of addition, not subtraction. It always has been. Michael, we always ask guests on this show a what else question, something completely different. We're going to be looking at this in more detail on next week's podcast. But you were raised, you've told us, in Washington, D.C. And currently there's a big debate among Republicans and Democrats about whether D.C. should gain the status of a state. Uh, with uh, with the representation in the House and Senate that would come with it. Your opinion, should Washington, D.C. become America's 51st state? Well, as I worked on the first constitutional amendment in 1978 to give D.C. residents uh, voting rights in the United States Capitol, in the Congress, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's a little overdue. Um, we failed in that effort. Um, this effort um, will have its challenges. You can make a case against statehood, per se, right, because of all the ancillary pieces that go with that. But you cannot make a case against voting representation. Also, in other words, whatever you call it, you still want them to have two seats in the Senate, even if they're not officially a state. That's correct. And you can get you can do So in other words, you can have a little bit of cake on either side, right? But at the end of the day, voting rights is what matters more than anything else. Call it whatever you want, but the citizens should have full representation in the House, full representation in the Senate. I mean, because otherwise you're you're talking about 600,000 citizens without full representation. That's just not right. Home rule is not enough. We need full representation. Michael Steele, former chair of the Republican National Committee, thanks so much for joining me for what's been a fascinating conversation. It has been a lot of fun and thank you for the opportunity. And that is all from us for this week. I have just a last little bit of annual leave to take and I'll be doing that next week. But don't worry, friend of the pod, the Guardian Washington Bureau Chief David Smith, will be stepping in to talk about those ever-growing calls that we discussed just there with Michael Steele for statehood for Washington, D.C. So do make sure to listen in for that. Before I go, as always, I want to hear your thoughts. We love reading your comments and questions when they come in, so please do keep sending them our way. You can email podcasts at theguardian.com or tweet me directly, my handle 
on Twitter is at Friedland with a double E. For now, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. As always, please stay safe and thank you for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.